In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. I've had 70-year-old organ players at the Methodist Church go need a day with me. Pastor, race car driver, doctors, business owners, every man. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute, salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and as you heard, I'm here with... Our producer and good friend Dale Culver. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks, man. I'll tell you what, dude. I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, this guy has one of the most unique ways of battling sex trafficking in the United States, and he targets the most unexpected group of men. I mean, this stuff is when you hear what this guy does, you're gonna be blown away. I I have to claim ignorance. I didn't realize. Uh, some of the issues in our country were as bad as they are, and this guy's just really going to war uh, on behalf of women. I'm really excited about it. You got a man word for us today? Uh-huh, and I'm not going to let you guess. I'm just throwing it out there. It is truth. Oh, that's an interesting word for this. Why would you pick yeah. that word? Well, his uh, name, it's in it, <laughs> in his organization. Oh, oh. uh-huh. But uh-huh. you know what? When everything is exposed and you see the truth, it combats all kinds of nastiness and so i think uh you know lies that we say or that are between husbands and wives uh when when everything is truthful and out in the open you're it just takes care of those walls that it builds up and the things that are falling apart and well, in, yeah. in our nation yeah the it's, lies it's really easy you know max Dupree in his book leadership as an art said leaders are dealers in truth and so it's really easy to mask over a truth with a, a veneer or a fake lie or fake news or just, and so it's really important that we expose the truth of who we are and, and even at our deepest core, our deepest level. And so I really like that word, man. So do we have anything going on as far as reviews? This is, it looks like Stephen Guillermo. So hit us up. Thanks for the review. That was great, man. That you just, it's encouraging. So just uh, hit us up with your contact information. I want to send you out some swag. I want to jump right into the podcast. I want to interview uh, my new friend, Bo Quickle. He is 51 years old, married to his high school sweetheart. They were together eight years and then got married after that. So he's been together with this gal for 34 years, Paula. He lives in an undisclosed city in North Carolina. And no, if you Google undisclosed, that's not a place you can go and get a cup of coffee. It's like Area 51. Yes, it is like Area 51. (laughs) Hey, in 2012, Bo founded Vigilante Truth, a nonprofit uh, organization in the abolitionist movement to end sex slavery in the United States of America. The primary focus of Vigilante Truth is to radically diminish the consumer demand for services provided within the commercial sex trade. Their goal, and I love this, is to end sex slavery in the United States, which is being accomplished. They do this through education, public awareness, Hotel John interventions. We're going to find out what that is later. Adult massage parlor surveillance and creating high school clubs that create value, understanding in and of priceless females. So, Bo, it's great to have you on the show, brother. 
It is so great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Good to see you. Good to talk with you, both of you and Dale. Hey, man, before we jump into the show, why don't you take a couple minutes and just let our guests know who you are, uh, a little bit more about your personal life, things you enjoy, hobbies, anything else that would be pertinent to the conversation today? You know, uh, pertinent maybe to the conversation is a a past guy. I talk about him in third person. (laughs) God so radically changed me in 2011 uh, (laughs) that 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 guy really no longer exists. That guy used to be an international real estate developer. Um, uh, nine different corporations I had started entrepreneurially and, and taken from zero to multi-million. Um, and, and I only bring that up. I, I don't want it to be prideful or arrogant in any way, but I bring that up because as we're talking about sex trafficking, I'm going to bring it to you from a business perspective. And uh, so I think it's important to, to understand that I understand what business is really all about. And, and supply and demand and, and, and products and consumer demand and things of that nature. Um, I used to have some hobbies then. Really, uh, now I'm, I've gone from a happiness junkie to a joy junkie. So anything that used to make me happy, I no longer do. I don't play golf anymore. I don't uh, race cars anymore. I, I really just am heavily involved in, in fighting and ending trafficking. Uh, it just brings me great joy, no matter how dark it is in the trenches, no matter how horrific uh, the stories become, um, the experiences are related back to me, uh, I still get great joy in it. So I would rather be fighting trafficking than anything else. That, that would be my hobby. That would be my passion. That would be my life. And the reality is on top of that, this is a life or death situation. So for me to go and play a, a five-hour round of golf, there's going to be a number of women that are going to be raped during that period of time. And, uh, I think I just take this so seriously that it doesn't allow me to enjoy something that might be frivolous. And then lastly, what we're going to be talking about is broken men uh, and what they use to self-medicate with. Uh, and, and what we would define as hobbies can be a big portion of that. So because God's done such a wonderful job of restoring me, uh, restoring me, healing me, uh, taking care of any of the past traumas that I had, I really have no reason to self-medicate anymore. So uh, that's a big part of, uh, of of being focused in on fighting trafficking as well. I don't have any distractions that are pulling me other places. So did you get saved in 2011, or did you just get changed after uh, being saved? Changed. Yeah, no, I, I, I have that story of being 10 years old and getting my salvation at a, a Christian rock concert and um, met the Holy Spirit head on at a middle school age, 12, 13. Um, sat in the back of, of some churches all through my uh, rest of my years in adult life. But it was really in 2011, if, if you think of God as a potter or like that analogy, he uh, instead of just changing the shape of the vase or putting on a new handle, he actually took me all the way back to, to dust and water and started completely over again. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Here's I'll throw this one out there. I don't recommend it uh, to be said lightly, but my prayer became make my heart your heart. And I would say that throughout the day. And it was about six months that that just was really my only prayer. Lord, make my heart your heart. And he honored that prayer uh, and gave me his heart for these trafficking victims. And um, yeah, I used to be quite the manly man. Now I might cry four or five times to a chick flick. I don't, (laughs) I cry more than my wife does at all. You know, I can't watch a, a Christmas commercial without breaking down. God has just really softened my heart empathetically for anybody, men and women, that are involved in trafficking, and even more simply, that are fighting slavery of any kind. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I find myself crying at the same things you're talking about. I think that is manly. But I also think men, as we get older, you're 51, I'm 53, I think there's something that happens biologically to us, too where there's a, there's a natural propensity to soften up as men. Maybe that's just a Christian thing, but I find myself in the same place as you with that. So it's interesting. Well, hey, I, w- I will tell you that I was a cold-hearted, selfish person right up until that day. Ah. <laughs> and when he changed me from that day forward has been a muckety mess. So okay. I give all that glory to him. I got you. Well, you, you said that you exchanged happiness for joy. And so I wrote, I wrote down, because... It sounded like you also exchanged play for purpose. 
So your play brought you happiness, but your purpose brought you joy. Can you kind of walk me through that a little further? You know, I think, yes, I would agree with everything you just said. Uh, the reality for me was um, I had hundreds of millions of dollars at my uh, disposal. I had whatever car was my fancy for the day, whatever yacht was my fancy for the day. I took whatever trip I wanted. Uh, I, I literally had no budget. So I could do anything that would make me happy. And as soon as something no longer made me happy, um, I was on to the next thing. So it might have been a different car or a different boat or a different, you know, experience. Um, my 40th birthday, I rented the largest trimaran in the world and had 20 of my closest friends down on this boat for 11 days. And I can tell you, come day nine or 10 or 11, I was ready to get off the boat. Yeah. Um, and, and I love boating. That's probably my, my greatest passion outside of fighting trafficking. So, um, Happiness is fleeting. It only lasts so long. But joy, which I have found in, you're right, in, in the purpose, walking out the purpose. Yeah. Um, it, it's a totally different, I don't even want to say it's an emotion. It's a totally different spiritual place. It, it's living, it, for me, it's living in heaven versus living in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't explain it. it, it it's, but it's a way better drug, I can tell you, than... You know, it, I, I tell people all the time, listen, you might see me in a corner in a fetal position bawling because of traffic. But at the same time, I am in great joy in great joy for what we're accomplishing in the, in the movement forward that we're making. Um, so I tell people all the time, you, chase joy. Don't chase happiness. No, that's really good wisdom. And I really appreciate that. Hey, we're going to jump right in here, Bo, and throw you into what we call our rapid fire round. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, buddy. Hey, I, 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 based on your ministry, uh, I'm just going to call this the creeper round. And so I went on to your <laughs> website, and I looked around your website, and I, I looked at watched the videos, and I pulled off some phrases and words that you talk about. And I just want to throw them out to you, and I just want you to give me your gut-level reaction uh, to these uh, words and phrases, all right? All right. Okay. So here, and this will lead into the, the interview questions. The first uh, phrase is devaluation of women. Oh, it's beautiful. We spiritually, uh, devil's been after Eve since uh, the very beginning. Uh, but but our culture has done a wonderful job of devaluing women uh, to a point of. Uh, I think the easiest example I use in North Carolina is. If I put a leash around my rescue dog Molly's neck and drag her behind my pickup truck down the street, that would be felony animal abuse. And if I take that same leash and that same collar and put it around my wife's neck, drag her behind the same pickup truck down the same street, that would be a misdemeanor assault charge. You're kidding me. So, no, no. And and you're going to find that throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have as a culture, so devalued women to a place even below dogs legally. But at the same time, if we, if we take women from their priceless standing, and that's something we can talk about later in the program, um, and reduce them to a $20 oral sex act or a $100 uh, intercourse sex act, so, uh, that's where the value of that girl becomes. Even if she's a beautiful supermodel and she's in Vegas where they're going to charge five or $10,000 for a sexual experience with her, we're still setting a limit to her. But when we devalue women as men, we think it's okay to pay a purchase price for them. And then on the flip side of that is a woman is then valuing herself based on that. Uh, and, and that just propitiates the entire death cycle uh, or death spiral of human trafficking. Would you say the devaluation of women is the same or synonymous to objectifying women? Or are they different? No, objectifying women would be the tip of the iceberg. Okay. Right? Okay. Their valuation is their worth. Um, you know, if, if, instead of calling them an object, we're actually then, we would then be even valuing that object. So, I mean, if, if I call my wife, um, a diamond, I'm still then valuing her to a diamond and what level of diamond and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So, um, those are two different things they relate, but the valuation piece, as far as what we're doing in our cultures and society, is far more important than object, object. 
objectification. There we go. Man, I really appreciate that clarification. That's really good. So the next, the next uh, grouping of words, I'll be honest with you, Bo. This really uh, shocked me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I a lot of this stuff, I'm going, oh my, I never knew this. So here are the last four words: truckers, bikers, and golfers. Right. <laughs> so those are our our army guys, right? Uh, those, those are the volunteer armies we're trying to raise up. Uh, but the reality is. Those are groups of men um, that are paying to have sex with women more in more regularity than other men. And, and I don't pick on truckers. I don't pick on bikers. I don't pick on golfers. But, uh, and, and you could add to that men who are, are going to conventions uh, uh-huh. for, for the work or, or educations, right? So these are just men who get together in groups um, who during that get together will go out and purchase sex. And so those are the, the guys we are trying to infiltrate and uh, educate and, and get them to understand that what they're doing is causing harm and, and what that harm actually looks like. Yeah, I just that, that, that I, I just I'm speechless. I never thought of that. And how did you identify these groups and, and realize that there's a massive problem at truck stops? How did you do that? So well, there's 3.5 million truck drivers in our country. Holy so that's cow. just a large career group of people. Um, that was a stat that was given to me, gosh, within two weeks of even hearing about trafficking um, back in 2011. Um, truck drivers are forced, and it's the only business I know that is like this. So they're forced to park for 10 hours a day. That's a, that's a federal mandate. So if you go by any truck stop in the country, you're going to see it any day and time, depending on the size of the truck stop. Truck stop. You might see 100 to 200 trucks parked for that 10 hour period. Well, the traffickers slash handlers slash pimps, these are all synonymous words now. They know those truckers are there. And so they will actually bring the trafficking victims, the girls to the truck stops and force them to move from truck to truck to truck. I was speaking to a law student or at a law school and a law student asked the question, what's the second um, group of people that, you know, and I said, listen, it would be bankers if every high-rise bank building came with a twin mattress in their cubicle. Right? Uh-huh. So, again, it's not, it's not picking on truck drivers. They happen to have two seats and a twin mattress, and the girls are brought there. Um, it would be any office building if it came with a bed and the guys were forced to sit there bored for 10 hours, and then girls were brought to those cubicles. So it's really just about a fixed number of men. And statistically, one out of five men is purchasing commercial sex. So if you group a bunch of men together at any one place, you have a built-in customer base. And so, you know, they figured that out. Um, Bikers, you know, whether it's a a bike rally, uh, their whole culture is about women being possessions. Uh, So that's a little bit of a different matter. And and golfers, uh, gosh, I've been on golf trips. I know what goes on in golf trips. You put a bunch of guys together and you head them down to the beach for a weekend of golf. There's going to be some girls bought within that group. So that's another reason we target them specifically. One out of five guys have purchased? One out of five guys admits to purchasing sex. And now you might not know this, but I happen to know guys, a lot of them are liars and won't really tell the truth. Oh, totally. uh, I'm guessing maybe that's as high as one and a half or two out of five guys. Um, So, you know, it's, it's every man, and as we talk about our, our hotel interventions, I'll be able to describe that in a little more clarity. All right. Okay, and this goes to my next uh, number or phrase for you, and that's 300,000 girls. All right, so there, right now, as we're on this podcast, there are over 300,000 minors oh, whoa. that are being trafficked in the United States right now. That's under 18. Average age of a sex-trafficked female is 13, by the way. So uh, that's just the minors. And of course, uh, by the end of today, there will be some 17 year 364 girls that'll move into 18 and, and be removed from that number. So you, and, and you just don't get out of the light because you had your 18th birthday. So, uh, and these are Department of Justice stats, right? So you can guess there's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 females being trafficked in our country right now. And that is only 80%. 20% of the victims are actually boys. So yeah, large number. It's a it's and again, you know, pick your your favorite uh, NFL stadium. 
fill it full of people. I know in Charlotte, North Carolina, that's a, a 73,000 person stadium. So fill that six, seven, eight times. That's how many victims are in our country being raped each and every day, 10 to 15 times. And how many of these 300,000, I know that's a, a low number. How many of these girls are American girls versus foreigners, foreign girls that are brought in? Such a great question. Uh, 80% of these victims were born in the United States. Wow. I hate the, I hate the name trafficking. It needs to be human slavery. It needs to be something else because when you – and I've been speaking awareness talks to hundreds of thousands of people over the last decade – and, and they always relate trafficking like they do to drug trafficking, where they're, we're smuggling something across the border and selling it. That's not the case at all with human trafficking in our country. These are 80% American-born girls. And I think the number is actually getting a little higher than that. I think it would be moving more towards 90 because all of the exotic women, whether it's an Asian girl or a Latino girl or a, a Russian girl or you know any of these other stereotypes, that American men would think are exotic. Those girls are now living in our country, born in our country, speak their native language in our country. So you don't have to go out of the United States anymore to find exotic. Mm. So uh, that's why that number is increasing. But yeah, no, this is a homegrown problem. Uh, and it's being, uh, it, it, it's put together. It's organized by homegrown organizations. Gosh. Well, here's a, <clears throat> here's a, a phrase or, uh, grouping of words here that I have a real, I, I really need to understand this. This is this is new for me, and here it is: consensual prostitution versus non-consensual slavery. Here we go. All right, so <laughs> that's what the educational message is all about. Yeah. Uh, how do we end slavery? That that was the original question, and so to figure out how to end it, you need to figure out what it is you're trying to end. And so as I began uh, jumping in with both feet and studying this, uh, uh, what I found was that prostitution, uh, as we know it, as, as we ignorantly know it, or, or what we think of it by definition, really no longer exists in this country. Uh, I, I have, in the last uh, decade, met two consensual prostitutes, just two, and, and, and I'm in lots of places that nobody else wants to go unless they're there to, to, to buy prostitution. Um, what's changed is instead of, you know, we'll say Jane, Jane Doe, instead of Jane being a consensual, uh, she's putting herself through law school, she's putting a roof over her head, she's a single mom, any of these kind of excuses or lies that you, you would hear now, um, she's no longer a consensual keeping all the money for herself. What's happened now is traffickers have come in, and, and in the same way they did this with drugs, uh, they told Jane, you need to leave the, the corner uh, or we're going to kill you, and then they replace her with one of their trafficked individuals and or they just make Jane one of their individuals so that they keep 100% of the money. They're forcing the female to do the sex act, and so now it's become a non-consensual uh, at sex act because she's being forced to do it. Whatever that force or blackmail or coercion looks like, that's a whole nother definition. And we can get into that in a little bit, but the long and short of it is when a man bumps into a prostitute, even if she's smiling, even if she's, she's telling him the stories he wants to hear so he can justify being there. Even if he gives her the money, as soon as he leaves, she's going to give a hundred percent of the money back to the trafficker, back to the pimp, back to the handler, again, all synonymous, she's going to get nothing, and that would be non-consensual sex, and we term that as rape, because that is the definition of rape. If I walk into an apartment building, I knock on the door, the lady answers, she lets me in, she's smiling when I'm there, I take her back into her bedroom, I force her to have sex with me through physical beating, blackmail, any kind of coercion. Uh, I leave $100 on her nightstand. I command that she smiles at me as I leave, and, and then I leave. That's rape. I don't care who you are, where you're at. That's a rape situation, and that's exactly what's happening in trafficking. I'm still at a hotel room. A girl's still coming. She's smiling. She's negotiating. She's the one that takes the money. She's the one that tells the story. I leave 
with my little fantasy, but as soon as I'm gone, the pimp walks in, takes the money. So why was she there the whole time? Because she was coerced and forced into that. And that in itself is the biggest piece that I have to teach men. All spirituality aside, salvation aside, restoration aside, just in true logic, they need to understand that what they're doing at a bare minimum is paying the pimp to rape the girl. And there's no gray area in that whatsoever. I really appreciate you clarifying this because, you know, I, I've i never even been in a strip club or anything like this. It's all, I'm just pretty ignorant, I guess. But I, you know, I've heard the phrase prostitution is the oldest profession in the world, right? So for me, I'm thinking to myself, so what's the designation here? What I hear you saying, Bo, is that the moment a handler or a pimp or a whatever you want to call them enters the program is taking their money, that becomes non-consensual rape, a.k.a. slavery. Now, help me to understand, and again, totally ignorant. So as a stripper in a strip club, would that be the same thing? Do they do that? Is that also, are these gals given sex or are they just dancing or what's going on there? So, so at a strip club, no, it would not be the same thing. Okay. Uh, under, under the guise, and, and let me clarify this real quick because it, it's a gray area for a lot of people, a lot of men who do visit the strip club. You, I, I, unlike you, I've been in a strip club. Uh, you have not missed much. But <laughs> in a strip club, I've, I've seen movies. I've seen movies in, that have a strip club. So I guess I've been in a strip club by watching a movie or something. <laughs> that, it, it, you're not allowed to touch them. So if you can see it on, on TV, that's as good as. Okay, my, my wife tries um, to close my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the long and short is, a girl there has is being objectified. To, to go back to that earlier. She has been devalued down to uh, dance for me. You're worth $10 or $20 a song. Um, but she normally is there consensually. Now, what I do bump into at strip clubs is this. Her boyfriend is sitting on the couch all day, and she's going to the strip club, and she comes home and gives him some portion of the money to pay the rent and that sort of thing. So he's technically living off of her, but it's still – Kind of his choice. Yeah. I mean, his choice to be home, her choice to be there. But just past that, and I do see this, so I, I don't want anybody, you know, when you go to strip clubs, you you would have to have this in the back of your mind, is that there are boyfriends, and I put quotes around that, that your listening audience can't see, but I put quotes around it. That boyfriend can actually be a trafficker, sends her to the club, he will keep 100% of the money, and then if she doesn't make the quota, and every sex trafficking victim across the board is going to make $1,000 a day for their trafficking. So let's say that particular night at the, at the strip club, she only makes $500. He will then send her off to the track or the hotels to make the other 500 We see a good bit of that. So I, I just think that, that the strip clubs is just the entry place for trafficking. You know, that, that's the beginning of the slippery slope. It's like cigarettes um, to drugs. Yeah, I understand. Exactly. Yeah, you know, you're just, you're there. Uh, traffickers are going to come there. They're going to, you know, this whole thing is about how the victims, they're, they're chosen by master manipulators. That's what traffickers are. They're master manipulators. And so they're just looking around to see who they can devour. And it's a lot easier to find a girl who has been devalued and that can be devoured at a strip club, perhaps, than anywhere else. I'll tell you what, Bo, I, you have clarified that better than anybody I've ever talked to. I've always wondered the whole sec, you know, non-consensual versus consensual. So you, so you really have clarified that. So I now have a healthy understanding of what you're battling against. So thank you so much. So, so you started Vigilante Truth in 2012 to end sex trafficking in the United States. Why... So here's my question, Bo. Why did you feel the need to start your own nonprofit instead of adding your efforts and skill set with an existing organization? Why did you go the entrepreneur? I know you're an entrepreneur, but why did you pick that pathway? That's a good question. First off, I want people come to me all the time and they want to start something uh, to do with trafficking, to fight trafficking. They always want to start a nonprofit. Here's what I would say. Do not start a nonprofit. There's already somebody doing what you want to do. Go join them and put your efforts and your skill sets with them, right? Collaborate. Yeah. Uh, so 
that would be my, I'm that way with even the businesses, any entrepreneurial business I've ever started. I've always wanted to look around and see if there's a partner that's already doing it, that understands it, that I can walk in and you add my skill set to. So going back to our earliest discussion, uh, the day that, that God decided to play the role of potter, I had uh, arrogantly scheduled a meeting, a lunch meeting, a one-hour lunch meeting with a missionary couple, and they had just returned from Nicaragua. They were uh, living in the streets of Nicaragua for six months to gain trust from the girls that were being trafficked so that they could rescue girls out. They had rescued three girls, which was amazing. Uh, even further amazing is the, the woman was a medical doctor and the husband was a veterinarian. They both had walked away from their careers in their early 30s to go live as homeless people to rescue these girls. So that they were just amazing to begin with. Um, but that one hour lunch meeting lasted 10 straight hours. Oh, wow. And like you, uh, you, I would ask a question, they would give an answer, and that would cause another question. Um, I cried that day. I went to the bathroom and threw up that day. I could have killed somebody that day. Just every emotion uh, was brought before me through these trafficking stories. And these were just real live, you know, we've been there. We've seen it with our own eyes. Explain this to me kind of stuff. Uh, But at the end of that 10 hours, they said, well, you know, do you think you would write us a check? And back then, I I, again, was very wealthy. That's why they wanted to meet with me. They wanted to raise some money so they could go back to the streets to rescue more girls. And I looked them both straight in the eyes, and I said, I would not give you a dime. And uh, and they had asked me so that I, I don't seem cruel to anybody, but they had asked me to give them the truth. Uh, and this is really where Vigilante Truth was, was born. Uh, so I gave them the truth. I wouldn't give them any money. I didn't know any other wealthy people that would give them any money because you know, they wanted $250,000 and they figured that would rescue three more girls. And I said, well, girls have been devalued to a level well below, you know, that amount of money. I don't know anybody's going to write you a check for of $250,000 for three girls they don't even know. So good luck with that. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's the problem we were facing. I said, but even more importantly to that, the way that I work is I'm not getting off the couch if I can't end something. I want to win the battle. I'm not interested in, in swinging my sword for the next 10 years. I am interested in God's victory that he promised me. I know I need to battle to get that, but on the other end of that is victory, and that's what I'm there for. And so I told them that what they were doing was actually only making the problem worse, um, and which doesn't make any sense. How can, how can rescuing girls be making the problem worse? But again— I go back to my business experiences. This, this is a supply and demand issue. And if you only focus on the supply, which is the females that they're trying to rescue, that's the supply. The product is the sale of the sex. There is the demand is the consumer paying for it. But we're in a capitalist country. And if you only uh, focus on removing supply, you're actually driving up the demand. You're actually driving up the cost of the product. And so manufacturers, in this case traffickers, will bring more supply back to the marketplace. And so I challenged them at that time to come back three weeks later and to offer me a demand solution to go with their supply solution. And at that time, I would talk to them about how we could raise the money. And, and so they, at that 10 hours, we, we hugged, cried a little bit, prayed a whole lot, and they left. Um, and so for me, that, that started a, um, what most people thought was a mental breakdown, but it started a <laughs> been there <laughs> two, two nights, three day, um, kind of just soulless lost in while guy was, you know, playing with the dirt in the water. I mean, I, was, I just really sat almost soulless. Um, and at the end of that, that third day, um, I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten. And so I said, God, what is it? You know? what do you want from me? And he said, I want you to fight trafficking for the rest of your life. And I said, all right, I'm willing to do that. What is that going to look like? And uh, to keep the story short, you know, he let me know that uh, I was, and actually called me big boy. He said, guess who's going to fight the demand, big boy. And you know, so I had come up with something and, and God laid it back in my lap 
And so I said, well, that's fine. I, I, I get it. So I'm not going to be a part of their group, right? Because they're, they're really just supply-based and what they're trying to accomplish. And so I started searching out. Trying, and listen, uh, when I say try, started searching out, at that time, if you Googled prostitution or sex trafficking, one picture, I mean, one picture in all of Google in 2011 had a picture uh, and I still have that picture. It was two girls standing, talking up to a truck driver, right? That's the only picture on Google. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of organizations out at that time. Um, and what I found was there were zero organizations that were actually paying attention on any level. I mean, zero attention to the Johns, the consumer demand, the people that were looking to pay for this sex. So I had no choice but to start my own nonprofit uh, with the directive and the focus of fighting demand. Wow. Hey, which is awesome. you know. wow. hey we're going to take a, a short break and hear from our sponsor. We'll come right back. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. Every man in the arena matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena, Jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of the field guide. It's Jim's 365-day bathroom book for men. It's the study of manly words in the Bible, illustrated with great stories. This is also a great resource for all our arena men. We'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast, including Jim's personal blog, prayer requests, and weekly boots-on-the-ground mission. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. Well, hey, Bo, I'm, I love what you're doing. And when I, when I went and looked at your questions, when I looked at your website, you're doing something that I've been arguing since we started the Men in the Arena, 2012. So we started Men in the Arena the same year you started Vigilante Truth. And I've been arguing this for seven years on deaf ears. And here it is. When a man gets it, everyone wins. But when a man gets it, everyone loses. And 80%, maybe 90% of the world's pain is caused by men. So stopping the rescuing the prost or the young gals who are trafficked doesn't help. Uh, you know, all, nothing helps. Really, it, it, you got to fix the men. Amen. And so I love what you're doing because you guys are going after. The men, because you know, if you fix the men, you've you've eradicated the problem. Yeah. So you know, I wish I could take full credit for that understanding. Um, this is probably a great time to introduce one of our undercover operations, uh, and, and this is how I came across this wisdom, which for me is knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. So you always have to have some experience to go with it. Yeah. Um, oddly enough, God always gives me the experience and then the knowledge to gain my wisdom because I'm probably too hard-headed just to learn it the old-fashioned way. But uh, in, in fighting the demand, I, I wanted to do more than just speak to a group of men uh, or fire up a bunch of wives to go home and, and whoop up on their men around the dinner table. <laughs> you know, the definition of consensual versus non-consensual, it is really important. Uh, it, even in, in prison circles, you will find that when the, the riot breaks out, the first person to catch the shiv, catch the knife, uh, is going to be the rapist on the block. So even our lowest common denominator of criminal activity understands rape is wrong. So logically, getting that message out is, is pretty straightforward. But I wanted to reach men, uh, maybe just out of boredom more than anything else, but I wanted to reach men where, where it was happening. And, uh, and, and truly make a difference, not to a blanket group of 30 individuals of which statistically a few of those men are my problem. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that I was going one-on-one -on -one with an actual problem. And so I, I um, started something. Uh, we now call it a hotel intervention. 
but it's based on law enforcement's reverse sting. And what a reverse sting is, is they pose as a prostitute and draw men into hotels or apartment buildings. And they'll have a, a law enforcement female decoy and um, she will get a solicitation for sex. And then they will uh, arrest the man, arrest the John for, uh, for solicitation. And the 2013 Department of Justice study said that if they would do that publicly for five weeks in a row, that for the next 60, I'm sorry, for the next six months, for the next six months, 60% of the prostitution would decline. Whoa. So to me, those reverse things are the most powerful way to slow this, you know, to ebb the tide, to slow it down. So I said, well, um, I am not law enforcement and uh, don't have any, any true military background. So how is it that I could do this? Uh, and of course I tried to influence law enforcement to do it and really didn't get anywhere that, that way. Um, so I just took it before God and I, uh, had some, some federal law enforcement, uh, acquaintances. I think it's probably a good term for them. Um, <laughs> and I ran my ideas by them. And, and so they said, well, this is what would be legal for you and this is what would not be legal for you and this is what you're going to have to say and not say the the last thing I want to do is get arrested for soliciting although that would be a, I guess a real big deal for me at this point in my life but um you know what I can't be have an issue with is kidnapping <laughs> that would be an issue that's how OJ got in trouble right so um you want to invite a man to the hotel but you want to make sure that he is free to leave at all times and and so um that's what I did. And, and, and we, we kind of started cold Turkey and, um, I posed as a prostitute online. Uh, at that time it was Backpage was the number one solicitation for prostitution website. And I put up a dummy ad and I had a, a decoy female decoy answer the door and she sat a man on the couch and she went to the bathroom to change and out of the bathroom I came. <laughs> and, uh, he's, he's probably going, man, you changed into an ugly middle-aged man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is terrible. He's like that. That was a beautiful woman. That she, uh, yeah. So it, you know, and, and the funny thing was that in those first few, anyway, what I would say was the next fifteen minutes is not going to go the way you thought it was. So uh, <laughs> then, but, you know, and and I have to. I think it's important to understand how free the men are to leave. I then now I come out and I say good evening, and then I tell them that I'm not law enforcement that they're not being detained in any way, that they're free to leave at any time, that I'm not there to hurt them, that I don't have any weapons. I ask them if they have weapons, and you'd be surprised. They'll hand them to me if they do. Um, and I just lay them to the side, and usually, not usually, 100% of the time, they're sitting on the couch, and I will come around and sit down on the little table in front of them, and, and I call it getting knee-to-knee. And um, <laughs> Holy cow. So, you know... Uh, it's important to understand that they're free to leave, not even from a legal standpoint, but I've only had two guys in three years get up and run out, just two. And so you have to ask yourself, well, why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's a very pertinent question. Why are these men not leaving? Um, and, and I was really hoping, especially with the first guy, that he might try to get up and leave or that he might try to hurt me. I had been you know, dealing in this, this filth of trafficking for a lot of years at that point. And I had some pent-up anger that I was wanting to maybe exhibit a little uh, release on. But what happened with the very first guy, and it's been every single man since then, every single one, was the question from them is, well, if you're none of those things, why are you here? And so I explained, I'm here because you were about to purchase non-consensual sex. You were, you're you're actually walking the, the thin line of rapist. And, and I would play um, a, a, a verbally assaulting by definition. You know, I'm, I'm the bad guy. And I'm just really calling them, I'm calling them to the floor, giving them the truth. They're getting convicted of, of what they were going to be doing. And the very first time, and, and I, I still scratch my head, at, and, and maybe it was, I'm a little frustrated with the Holy Spirit on this one, but out of my mouth came the words, at about, it, it, I can do a guy on the hour every hour, but about the 30 minute mark, this very first time, the Holy Spirit said, and by the way, we're not only here to free the girls, 
but we're here to free you. So why are you actually here? And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, why did you just ask that? I know why he's here. I'm ready to pound the guy. Why do you, he sounds like you just offered him grace and mercy. Yeah. Uh, And I call this, this knee to knee. For me, it's my so Jesus moment because I know the filth of, of what I used to be. And I know how Jesus offered me grace in the midst of that and salvation in the midst of that. And, and so the hardest lesson for me to learn within trafficking is God loves them just as much as he loves me, even though now I'm, I'm holy and righteous and God should love me more, but he doesn't. And so, you know, as, as I said that to this young man, he looked at me and he was 22 years old. He looked at me and just started bawling and began wow. to share with me the traumas that had affected him from his, his early teenage years. I didn't know what to do with that uh, other than join him in crying, uh, which, you know, you're, you're just swinging the pendulum totally from one side to the other. And then out of nowhere, the decoy, who was a trafficked female and was supposed to remain in the bathroom, came flying out of the bathroom. And when I say flying, I mean she landed at my feet and his feet and put her hands on his feet and began to pray over him. It was like nothing I had ever witnessed. I, I really couldn't tell you what to do with it. But by the end of, I stayed with that cat a little longer. By the end of two hours, that young man had called his youth pastor and left a voicemail. These crazy guys from North Carolina have shown up at this hotel. This is what I was going to do. And I am repenting of this and I will see you in church on Sunday. And right, this, this, this beautiful moment of restoration and healing to the kingdom. And I would have thought that was going to be a one-off, but I'm telling you, nine out of 10 guys are on their knees repenting and sobbing at the end of this experience, time after time after time after time. And, and so much so that I really, I don't want to say I have a script, but I know where we're going now. And so 15, 20 minutes of me belittling the guy. And I always have a, a pastor. Uh, now we've gone to two pastors, but I always have a pastor that comes out later on and sits down next to me. And that pastor for 10 minutes or so will build the guy back up. Um, and then out of my mouth will come, hey, we're here to free the girls. We're also here to free you. Why are you actually here? And boom, here we go again. And it's always a different story. Um, sometimes it'll be such a trivial trauma. You can't even call it trauma. And I'm thinking in the worldly way, if I would just reach out and slap him real hard, we can fix him here, (laughs) but the trauma will be just as real to him. I've had a man discuss being raped from the ages of eight to 12 and and how that affected him. So, you know, and and as far as it being all men, um, I've had 18 year old high school seniors go knee to knee with me. I've had 70-year-old organ players at the Methodist Church go knee to knee with me. I've had pastors, race car drivers, uh, doctors, business owners, uh, Asians, Latinos, blacks, whites, Indians, every man, every economic background. And what I've taken away from this is, and so that's the experience, right? And I have to then put the knowledge with it. But I don't know that I've ever come in contact with a man who's not broken Mm. on some level. And these men are simply self-medicating their pain. It's just that simple. And so that's the first 30 minutes of this is where you're at. And then Jesus steps in and says, here's grace. Here's mercy. What is your pain? And then they, they, they talk about what their pain is, and then Jesus comes right over the top of that and restores that and heals that pain. And they walk out of that, that room new and healed with no reason to ever come back into the room and self-medicate with a female again. Wow. And that is the man piece. So you are absolutely right. You know, I, I, I spoke uh, to a, a group the other, a couple nights ago, and, and it was made up of men and women. And the men always just cross their arms and lean back in their chairs and, and give me the, the stink eye. Because I'll flat out say, men, you're the problem. I'm glad you're here tonight. 
here's the truth, here's the fix. I hope you do something with it and tell other men. But we, and I always have to include me, we are the problem. Yeah. And then I will absolutely ask forgiveness for every woman in the room that we men have hurt along the way and, and ask them to forgive us and bring some healing even through that. Yeah, and the beautiful thing, Bo, is we are also the solution. Yes. You know. Period. I mean, you have <clears throat> the men that are working side by side with you who have locked arms to do these knee to knee appointments. These are men. The yes. men, men speak life to men. The women, it's not a th- it's not a place for a woman to be. It's not her platform or her mantle. It's our it's our mantle, which goes back to a word I was going to ask you about earlier uh, on your w- website. You talk about the the phrase "shield and protect." Yes, it's not a woman's job to shield and protect a woman. No, and you know, and and to all the women out there, I, I do not want you barefoot in the pregnant. No, and, no, and no. Kitchen, right, but what I have found is is as we move into a discussion later on priceless value of women. God created men with a purpose. We are physically more capable than a woman, right? So let's just stereotype it there. But, but what I found is there are, are the nature of God has been placed into females far superior to what I have. And so it is my job to protect that in a woman from being demonically demolished by our culture or others, other spirits. Men in the Arena, you've been listening to part one of our interview with Bo Quickle. Next week, we will continue with part two. Until then, be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.